Hello and welcome to Two Hearts, a new Who podcast. I'm Callum. And I'm James, and this is the only podcast that thought we were just a survivor, but we're not. We're the winners. That's who we are. We're the podcast victorious. I don't care who you are. The podcast victorious is wrong. And every fortnight here on Two Hearts, we take a look at another episode from the Doctor Who revival. On today's episode, we move from one penultimate Doctor episode to another with the Waters of Mars. As always, just a quick reminder that you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Two Hearts Pod. That's two, the number two. Or if you want to have your long form thoughts read out on the show, you can email us at Two Hearts Podcast at gmail.com. And that's two, the word two. Callum, welcome back to another fortnight of two hearts how are you <laughs> i'm i'm good i'm good i'm uh, it's pretty cold here um it's 9 25 in the morning i've on my second cup of coffee um it, the day is young the day is young how are you um also cold also 9 25 in the morning also on well my first cup of coffee but but we'll get there uh it's it's a sunday folks we are both I'd say, you know, pretty tired. Hmm. No, I feel like that's fair. Hmm. Well, you know, we are working gals when we're working. We the, are. Working the town. Girls being girls being girls being girls. Girls. Um, that's us. Girls in the night. <laughs> <laughs> um, there doesn't seem to be any Doctor Who news this week for us to talk about. There was a uh, exit interview with Mandip Gill where she once again talked about how touchy-feely and lovey-dovey her and Jodie Whittaker are, um, to which our official Two Hearts response is, why isn't it on the show? Mm, I have no more commentary on that. Just just, yeah. just end this era. <laughs> 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 time, time to go time, time, to, go. time, to, time go. to go yes uh so i guess with nothing officially to report we are jumping straight in to the waters of mars state your name rank and intention The Waters of Mars is technically episode 16 of season 4 of the Doctor Who revival. It was written by Russell T. Davies and Phil Ford, and it marks the final Graham Harper-directed episode. Um, We are truly coming to the end of the RTD era here. Uh, It was the winner of the 2010 Hugo Award for Best Dramatic Presentation Short Form, and the plot is as follows. (laughs) The Doctor arrives on Mars on November 21st, 2059, near humanity's first Martian colony, Bowie Base 1. He discovers that today is a fixed point in time. The base will explode, killing the entire crew, but Adelaide, the leader of the base, her death will inspire her granddaughter to explore the stars. He tries to stay uninvolved, but Adelaide forces him to assist her in responding to an alert from the remote biodome. Two crewmen, Andrew Stone and Tarak Eitel, appear to be in a zombie-like state, generating copious amounts of water. A third crewmate, Margaret Kane, gets infected and they quarantine her while sealing off the biodome. From observation, they discover that the infection is by an intelligent virus in the base's water supply, which is coming from an underground glacier, and now it seeks to infect Earth. The Doctor discovers that a bad filter has allowed the virus to infect the crew. Adelaide realizes the remaining crew have not yet touched the source of water and are uninfected, and orders the crew to evacuate to their rocket back to Earth while setting the base to self-destruct. Before departing, the Doctor is forced to explain to Adelaide what he knows happens and why he cannot get involved. He starts back for the TARDIS while hearing the crew succumb to the virus and slow destruction of the base. 
At the last minute, he turns back and saves the survivors, Adelaide, Yuri, and Mia, declaring himself champion of time itself as the sole Time Lord left alive after the Time War. Understanding the wrongness of his actions and that the future cannot change, Adelaide steps into her home after being returned to Earth and shoots herself. The Doctor is shocked. He realizes that history has not changed save for knowledge of the base's fate from Yuri and Mia. Ood Sigma then appears in the street. The Doctor asks if it is his time to die. Unresponsive, Sigma vanishes. Back in the TARDIS, the Doctor refuses to face his death and sets off in a dramatic fashion. Callum, the waters of Mars. I did not realize until I had to read that out how much happens in this for such a simple focused episode. Well, <clears throat> simple is a, a a term one could use to describe the plot. <laughs> um, because if you would if you were just sort of doing the sort of barest bones surface level take on it, but there is there is a lot happening under the surface of the water of this episode um <laughs> if you like and and uh yeah great <laughs> <laughs> um um james what are your thoughts and feelings on this episode because i feel like it's quite a complicated response you have to just from our chat yeah, before this episode recording. It, it is. I, I do want to establish up front that, like, this isn't going to be one of those episodes where, like, James watches a beloved classic and decides he hates it. Like, we're, um, we're definitely not on that wavelength. I think The Waters of Mars is a, like, tremendously enjoyable episode of Doctor Who. Um, I had a pretty good time with it, I guess, in a vacuum. Um, like, when I just sit down to watch this and I don't think about much else going on with the show, I, I think it's... Um, a fair bit of fun. I think it's it's appropriately scary. I love some of the implications that it raises, but doesn't, I guess, quite grapple with about um, time and, and fate and whatnot. And we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, my only real gripes with it come in from broader structural issues with RTD's era. Um, and we've talked about this before, but that his vision for the, what the Doctor as a character is under him only really snaps into focus over like what this episode and the next two, basically. Like we've gotten hints of the God complex before, but it has been sub subtext. And so to see it be harshly dragged into the light, the way that it is in Waters of Mars is fun at the time and a little bit jarring in context, I guess sort of sums up where I'm at. What about you? Yeah. Yeah. I would, um, I would agree with you to a point. Um, I think this is an episode that has definitely, it diminished in my mind uh, with subsequent rewatches from when I first watched it, and and that's also an, a partially a, a symptom of this podcast, <clears throat> to be frank, and and the sort of journey that we've gone on with the Russell T Davies era, and um, things that I enjoyed and and still enjoy in the in a vacuum in this episode, like the scene in where the Doctor's held in the. Um, the what do you call it the decompression chamber and adelaide talks mm -hmm. to him the scene with the talek for instance um mm -hmm. yeah the they they and on generally the the run-up from that point to the end um i still really enjoy but i think it just throws into sharp relief at the same time like how much more of this we could have been getting in subsequent episodes yes. uh, not subsequent in previous episodes and and that's it's a shame ultimately um we all know russell's coming back we all know this is not his last uh like effort at writing doctor who there will be more to come there'll be different stuff to come um so you know there is still like there's still good stuff to come i'm sure um but yeah, like as, as a capping off to this first era, if for lack of a better word, um, mm, it's complicated. Mm. It is Com complicated. Is is right for the first time in a while. We're actually going to try and use a bit of a, um, a a show structure here because we have a lot of different thoughts about this episode. We're kind of running into a few different directions already. Um, 
let's start with like, you know, surface level uh, aesthetic stuff, because I think what a lot of people really connect with in this episode is the, you know, the, the base under siege horror aspects. Um, and I, I can see why, like, I think save for the massive corridors, which we'll get to, um, everything else that goes on here, I think looks really great and is directed with a lot of character. Um, Mm. I think Graham Harper does some really solid work. Yeah, I would agree with that as well. Um, I remember reading The Writer's Tale, the Russell T. Davies book, um, where he's talking about the just the um, just the designing and and uh, finding sort of locations for this episode, and and they really went back to the idea of like, and I really love this. They went back to the idea like that in two thousand and nine. You know, in the news, kids were reading about for water being discovered on Mars, about the possibility of first like flight mm-hmm. there. And it was exciting to write and to try and then depict a realistic sort of setting of what such a first colony might look like in a realistic time frame as well. And that, you know, right. okay. kids today would be the Adelaides of 2059, you know, which I love. Mm-hmm. Um, even if the events of this episode don't exactly inspire you to want to go into space. <laughs> um and so, yeah, I, I, I like the design of the of the base. I like it. I, I, I generally don't have much to say about direction because I don't know what I'm looking at, really, when it comes to to sort mm. of direction. But Graham Harper, you know, keeps things tight. He's really good at uh, those kind of action sequences. And it really, really sings in that, like I said, in that last sort of 10 minutes run up from when the doctor leaves the base and it starts falling apart. It's 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 a masterpiece. From that point on, I'm pretty convinced. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Agreed. I I think where Harper's direction um, comes through for me best is um, in that final act when uh, Adelaide is like, hey, like you you said we were going to not you said we were going to die here, but like, you know, hey, we're getting out of this place. Like I've decided I'm saving everybody, blah, blah, blah. Um, and the doctor is just standing on the edge of the room, watching them sort of like run around trying to, um, you know, lo- load up the ship with food, blah, 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 get-, get themselves ready for evacuation. And while that's going on, there is water slowly starting to sort of like weigh and creep in from the roof. And there's like a flashing alarm going off that nobody's noticing because they're also like hyped up on, on getting out of there. And the doctor notices it and it really makes you feel both his perspective and like what it would be to be just a passive observer during one of these like countless alien disasters the doctor's been involved in. But this time you are just watching and you're, you're kind of like, please notice the alarm. Please notice the roof. Like, God damn it. Please just look up, you know? <laughs> uh, yeah. Is that a criticism? No, it's a compliment. Oh, cool. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you meant like, no, uh, like when you say, I just think that the direction is really good in that sense. Like it, it gives you a tangible sense of like tension and mm. panic for, for those people. Um, even if those people aren't particularly well drawn, but we'll get to the writing. <laughs> we will. And, and if we're talking about like the general look and feel of this episode, it looks a million bucks. Um, the sort of mm-hmm. Mars landscape looks great. Even if I feel like they shot, in the same quarry that they do the Ood planet in the next episode, but that's neither here nor there. Yeah, I, I could see that. I could see that. Um, but the domes are great. Everyone loves a dome. Everyone loves a dome. That's a real uh, sort of like a botanic domey thing in Cardiff. Mm. So, and I think like... Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I was actually wondering, I was just like, this is a huge set. <laughs> like, no. um, I was like, oh, Doctor Who got that Monty. <laughs> um, Monty? No, okay. Um, yeah, it's a great set. And, and, but like, before we talk about the other really amazing design element of this episode, I just want to say, why... Did they write into the script and then have to depict <laughs> these fucking long corridors? I just feel like if they're going for realism, there is no realistic, you know, base of the future that's going to have, like, domes, big fucking glass domes and um, and big long corridors, like, connecting yeah. the main base to them. Because these corridors are what, like two kilometers or something long (laughs) 
And they talk about getting bikes to, you know, he, the doctor's like, oh, you need a bike to go down. They're so long. He has to supercharge Gadget, the robot to like. Oh my God. I hate that fucking scene so much. It's so stupid. The, the thing is like, and look, I, I know James hates fun, blah, blah, blah. I get that it's an established part of our podcast, but like specifically the only thing that really bothers me about him jumping on that little robot, supercharging it. And then him and Adelaide, like flying along, like they're in a cartoon, right? Is that they hop off of it and immediately the zombies are behind them again anyway. It's like, it was just such an unnecessarily weird segment of the episode. I know, I know. I feel like it was just it was for, it's for the kids ultimately. Um, oh yeah, just like the woman killing herself at the end. Well, <laughs> take the two things. <laughs> that's, that's the thing, but, that, but that's the thing. Like I and 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 that's you know part of the waters of Mars that I find interesting is that like you know this is still masquerading as family entertainment, and it the the ultimate act of the episode is suicide. Like that is insane. Well, we'll we'll get to that in a later bit of the episode. But yes, it is. We will. It is insane. Um, the water creatures look pretty cool, don't they? They they really do. Um, I have one minor gripe with them. I'll get out of the way up front. I don't like the contact lenses. I think they look cheap um, because I think that the the cracked mouth effect and the teeth in the water is all really horrifying. And when it's on the um, the girl that's in the quarantine in, in the med bay, right? She doesn't have the contact lenses, mm. and I think she looks much creepier because um, she gets to act with her eyes, whereas the the two men have those like you know bright white contact lenses in, and it makes them a little bit cartoonish for me. I don't agree, but I, I hear what you're saying. Um, well, let's just stop recording. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. We're, this is this is the thing that breaks us. Um, we made it to 50 episodes, but we're, we're breaking up over contact lenses. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. <laughs> no, I was going to say, in the, like, they had to work really hard to sort of make them not so creepy. <laughs> because right. the first yeah. iteration they did, and it's on the the confidential episode that accompanies this uh, episode. Um, the first mm-hmm. like sort of test they did, it like <laughs> it was fucked. Like I think the water didn't come oh, from really? their mouths; it came from like their head, and but like their oh, whole okay. face was like veiny and like like kind of like the zombies from the Unquiet Dead. Do you remember that episode from season one? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, and, and yeah, it, it was like properly scary. And they were like, we're going to traumatize a generation of children if we put this <laughs> out. <laughs> so they worked at it to make them a little bit less sort of. So I think that's why you have the, the water. Although I think the water coming from their mouth is creepier in general. Um, uh, yeah. Cause like, you know, it's the idea that like this person has long since drowned internally. It, like, exactly. <laughs> And the line about, yeah. like, the inside of their mouths being, like, black because they have this fission thing, like, that's mm-hmm. creating the mm-hmm. water, I just find so terrifying. So terrifying. It is. It's really, really good. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's one of those things where, like, you know, them shooting water out of their hands is is inherently dopey. It's so dopey. But it works. But there's, but there's something about it that works in the context of this episode. Like, water does feel like a genuine threat. Um, mm. And, you know, uh, the Doctor has that line where he's like, you know, water always wins. And the idea that, like, you know, eventually over time water will erode everything and that that water is malicious as well is like it's such a doctor who premise um but because everyone's playing it 100 percent straight i love it it is a doctor who premise and and yes i agree that the um the water shooting out of the, their wrists is like dumb because it's basically it's spider-manning that water <laughs> yeah but you can just you can tell it's a hose for, you know for instance if you yeah. yeah. want to go down that path um but the the um uh, yeah, like the the general threat of the episode of the of the water in particular is sold so so well, and because it's it kind of permeates every step of the story in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, from the opening with the carrot to the the chase in the conservatory to the realization that any of them could be infected, which I love. It's a great like upping of the mm-hmm. threat in a really subtle way of being like we've all could be infected because water is patient water you know i just i love that line yeah. mm-hmm. um 
And so each like step of this story is like, it's still investigating. It's still investigating the water and the, and the threat of the water that's surrounding them on this dry planet. Um, but it's sort of done in a way that allows you to then have these other separate conversations, which is the meat of the episode, which is about time, which is about the doctor, which we're going to get to in, in a later point of this episode. Um, mm-hmm. It's 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 really good. I'm just looking up now the images of the original water's creatures and oh. well, you know what? I'm gonna do that too. I know that we're an audio um you know format of, of a show, but we're gonna look this up. You two listening at home should look it up. The Waters of Mars original creature designs. Well, I couldn't actually that. I have I'm on a YouTube video to find them. <gasps> oh, yeah, yeah, no, no, I see what you're saying. Oh, that is much darker. Isn't it just? And Good and Lord, there's Doctor one Who. of them that's like, <laughs> this guy's just got his eyes wide open and a black mouth and it looks, like it actually looks. Yeah. <laughs> it looks terrifying. Oh, that's awesome though. They, they look amazing. And the contact lenses look a lot better in um the still photos as well. Mm. Mm, I agree. Yeah. The more you know. The more you know. Um, speaking of the the water monsters, I guess, um, I think that part of the reason why they are as um, memorable as they are is one part design, as we've talked about, but also just the performances of some of this supporting cast and the the characters that they are. Mm. Um, I alluded before that, like, I, I have some issues with the, um, the, the writing of some of these characters, but... These actors show up for work. Um, I, I really appreciate the work that's being done here. Um, Sharon Duncan Brewster plays Maggie. She's the one that um, is infected in the, the med bay that I was talking about. Mm. I think her performance behind that glass is exceptionally terrifying. Oh, it's really good, isn't it? Mm. And and really, really like her. Um, it, it's obviously it's just a small part, and she from that point on just becomes this the the marauding monster. But like, yeah. She just, she just, she just, it just embodies that terror in a really just physical way. I don't know how to describe it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, agreed. Agreed. It's like the perfect mix of maliciousness and baseline survival and hunger from a creature. Like it, it is simultaneously evil and just trying to live. Um, and I, I fuck with that. <laughs> I fuck with that a lot. Do you um, find this episode scary? I'm just genuinely curious. Um, I find it tense, uh, mm. more, more than scary. Uh, I, I, I think the water monsters for me are more uncomfortable body horror than scary body horror. Okay. If that makes sense. It does make sense. I was just thinking about it. Cause like a lot of people say this is like, like alongside empty child midnight, like this blink, it's the scariest episode of Doctor Who. And like, obviously right. scary is <laughs> subjective. And I think I'm not at an age where I can be scared by anything on Doctor Who now. Um, mm-hmm. But um, I was trying to think about it. I was like, I don't know if this is, yeah, like it, it's tense. It's a thriller. That's what it is really. Yes. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, very, very much agreed. Mm. Um yeah. Uh, they, speaking of being scared, um, I, I'm sorry, I have the IMDb cast list in front of me, so now I'm just going to do individual shout outs for performances I liked. Um, but Cosima Shaw plays uh, Steffi. She's one of the, like, like I don't know, C-tier supporting characters in this thing. Um, but she gets an exceptional death scene where she gets trapped in that room oh, so with good. the water. Um, and she turns on that video of, like, her, I think, is it her kids or her? I think it's her kids. Yeah, someone from her family, and she's watching this video play out as the water is, like, streaming in over her, and she has just nothing but horrific realisation that, like, this is it for her. Um, and it's it's such a great little moment. Um, Peter O'Brien, who... He's, he's Australian, he's Australian, yes. Yeah, Australian. Um, he shows up as the, I guess, like, I don't know, the, the pilot of the, the rocket. Second in command. Um, mostly... 
Yeah, whatever. Um, <laughs> mostly a, a pretty forgettable turn in this episode until, again, his death moment where he gets on the radio with Adelaide um, and he's basically just like, I don't know, it's like a like a love confession almost um, in, in like a really quick and small way. But I love his last line where he's just like, what, like, see you later or mm. something and just blows himself up mm. to stop the, the water from getting into the rocket. Mm. I love it. Love it, love it, love it. It's really good. He's really good. Um the the guy that plays Roman, mm-hmm. I, I I don't think I can take him very seriously, and he has the more of the dopier kind of uh, ends. Uh, is Roman the robot boy? Roman is the robot boy, and right, okay. He's yeah. he's loading he's loading um food up, and then there's just like this dramatic shot of one drop of water. And it drops on his face. Oh, yeah. And I understand why they do it, because they're selling the threat of, like, just one. Just one drop of water can infect Mm -hmm. you. Um, But, like, Steffi gets drowned in the stuff and takes the same amount of time to change as he does from one drop. And I just was like... He does his little, like, jiggle and he's like, I'm sorry you can't come in here. One drop. That's what you said. And I was like, you better go without me. Like, okay. Exactly. I was just like, <laughs> um, yeah, no, I know what you mean. I did feel the same way. Um, and look, obviously, uh, Lindsay Duncan as Adelaide mm. Brooke is an old timer Doctor Who performance. Mm. Um, she does quite a bit here. And, and David Tennant, I mean, pff, good Lord. We'll, we'll talk we'll, about We'll him. probably have to get to that. Yeah, exactly. We'll, we'll talk about the two of them when we when we get to the rest of it. We have missed um, uh, Yuri and Mia as well. Um, and that's part of the problem. Um, because Yuri and Mia are nothing characters. <laughs> like, I mean, a lot of these characters are nothing characters. Like, they are very much props in a Doctor Who story that's meant to be playing out in the background. And so in that sense, I understand why Russell didn't have the time or the the sort of emotional allocation to, to properly flesh them out. And these actors, as we were just talking about, take those moments, elevate the, who those people are. And even if it's just for like 30 seconds as they're dying, you can be like, okay, I understood you now as a, as a person. Um, mm. Mia and Yuri because they don't get those death moments because they ultimately go on to survive this. I think Mia gets one great moment at the end with the doctor, but that's at the very end of the episode. Mm. And up until that point, um, like Gemma Chan is a phenomenal actress and she just has nothing to do in this. Um, It is shocking how little is allocated to these two, given that they're meant to be part of the crux of the, of the end of the episode. But I guess Adelaide is the thrust of it. You know, Adelaide is, is definitely, the main character and all the other characters are just sort of there. Let's be real. Yeah. Um, and that's okay because like they do do good work with her. Um, mm-hmm. But yes, it just opens the door for a Gemma Chan revival in Doctor Who, I guess. Honestly, let's go. Like Gemma Chan's not busy. She's <laughs> not. I mean, she is in the two Crazy Rich Asians sequels and... I know. I heard about that. They're focusing on um, Astrid in the next one, and like, very here for it. I very here for that. I am here for it. Um. Anyway, uh, yeah. <laughs> she's like, I've always wanted to go to Mars, <laughs> and she's also in the new Olivia Wilde thriller. Olivia Wilde's in a new thriller. She's directing it, and Florence oh, Pugh oh. stars. Um, you like Florence yeah. Pugh. Florence Pugh, more like... Don't. No, we're not doing this. We're not, we're not litigating the state of uh, fandom and white women. Anyway, anyway. Um, yes. Yeah, so, like, the supporting characters aren't particularly well fleshed out or, or well written, and I do think that ultimately hampers some of the emotional impact of what this story is going for, um, even if the directing and tone does a lot of the heavy lifting. Uh, yeah, I, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. Should we talk about... Hmm. Um, should we talk about Adelaide and fate? Yeah. Yeah. So I brought this up to Callum right before we started recording. Um, the, so like the, the core premise of what's happening here in the waters of Mars, um, it's fashion. <laughs> it's fashion. Is it fashion? <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit. Um, 
The core premise of, of what's happening in the waters of Mars is the idea that the Doctor has arrived at one of the many like fixed points, quote unquote, in history where something absolutely unquestionably needs to happen for history to continue on with its current course or whatever the, the wibbly wobbly timey wiminess of it and him choosing to alter that. And that's a really cool premise from the doctor's point of view. You know, the idea of like last of the time Lords finally becomes a Lord of time, fully embracing the kind of like inherent villainy of, of, of that concept that we've talked about before on this show that has always been an undercurrent with David Tennant's doctor is that he is a ruling class person. Um, and mm. to finally get into that stuff is is fantastic. And, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but the flip side of that for me is wondering what Russell and his version of Doctor Who is ultimately trying to say about predestined or predetermined events and fate. Yeah. And, you know, if Adelaide is meant to die up there on, on that space station, like if there is meant to be a very specific sequence of events, who decides that sequence? Um, mm. If that, if, if everything is predetermined and none of our choices ultimately matter, what does that say about the show that's about time travel? And I don't think this episode remotely grapples with that concept. Um, I, I think they, they touch on it with the Donna stuff, right? Like the idea that she was always fated for something more, but individualistic fate versus everything is fated are, are two very different concepts in terms of narrative. You know what I mean? I do, I do. And I think we're opening the door to a, a, a much, much wider conversation. That's for sure. Um, what I will say is, like, I think from what the show has established in this era about fate, about fixed events, is that the Doctor and presumably the Time Lords, because they are lords of time, um, have some undefined innate sort of sense of events that must happen, like Pompeii, mm-hmm. like this base blowing up, um, and state and <laughs> a sense of other events being in flux. Um, oh, I know, crazy. Remember that. Remember flux. <laughs> Let's not. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think, like, from an in-universe perspective. Um, that's what's happening here. Like, it, mm-hmm. it, it, as ill-defined as it is, uh, the Doctor has a, has an innate sense that of what must happen and what mustn't happen, and he sensed that this event must happen. Now, mm-hmm. the, the actual flip side to this is that at the same time, like, if Time Lords have this sense, right, and they have this sense of, 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 of things that, like must happen in order for human for their version that's in their heads of of history to continue on as as it has been mm-hmm. like there are two things i want to say about this one is that david tennant is kind of grappling and i think time lords in general would then have to grapple with this concept that that version of events that they have established as must being as must happening throughout all of time nothing can interfere with it Mm -hmm. it mustn't happen because like things will go awry if they don't it they they just are like preservers of that original history they're like the supreme court (laughs) and Mm -hmm. and they they um they have to they're so they're sticklers for the the rules basically is how i sort of imagine it the other point is this only makes sense in the Russell T Davies era of the show because we're going to go into a series next series which establishes pretty firmly that time can be unwritten and the Doctor can unwrite time themselves pretty willy-nilly mm-hmm. without any kind of cosmic angst. And so, obviously, it doesn't pay to compare because they're two different writers and they're doing two different versions of the same show, but they do share a, a, a chronology, a... Um, uh, a history and um, they don't necessarily mesh. And I kind of like the Stephen Moffat version of this where like anything, it's thing, everything is in flux and you can use time to your advantage. You know, time can be a, a, mm-hmm. a tool. Um, well, I feel like just very quickly, no, I feel no, like I, Moffat used time as, as magic, you know? <laughs> well, yes. um, where, whereas RTD views it as, 
plot device, uh, I guess. Which like it isn't wrong. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not complaining about that. Like that, that's not a, a sassy swipe. Um, I just like you said. I prefer Moffat's interpretation of things, mm-hmm. where um, it's it's less about the rules of time and more about how time best serves the characters. It's it's like you know the Force in Star Wars. Like it's. It means nothing. Like you, you can do whatever you want with it as a storyteller, and I think you're you're better off when you embrace that angle of it. Um, and I think where the waters of Mars doesn't doesn't go wrong, but just leaves mm. me a little bit cold is that it doesn't do anything to interrogate this idea. And at the end of his era, now would be the time to do it. Like if he's going to sit down and have a full blown conversation with the audience about you know the man that we've been cheering on this entire time. Um, why not also like I've said this to you before make this a two-parter like make this Mm. your finale like really pull apart Doctor Who Mm. as a concept about why you can't do the things that he wants to do with with relation to time um what fate means humanity's role in that why our everyday little choices could matter you know there's just there's so much bubbling under the surface here Mm. and because it's a single episode and so much of it is spent running up and down corridors for some reason um we (laughs) we don't get enough time to talk about time no um and I, I would just, I would really want that because I think Russell, as a writer, especially if you look at something like Years and Years, right, which is a show about time, mm. um, in 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 a roundabout way, like in a very different way to Doctor Who, but like he he's a dude who seems to really fundamentally understand the emotional impact of of time as a as a storytelling device in his other works and in other times in Doctor Who as well. Ooh. I just think in this one, it gets a little bit too hung up on like you know, the flashing to the news headlines over and over again. Like, it's very matter-of-fact. Yeah, the news headlines are, are, are sort of a quick kind of get around that, I suppose. But I, I would sort of counter what you're saying by just, like, I think going back to what I was saying, which is that, like, in this version of in Russell's era, they have established that there are fixed events. They're sort of mm-hmm. using that as a way of exploring and ultimately of exploring the Doctor and the doctor's psychology. And so right. fate yeah. is a sort of a byproduct of, of, I think fate ultimately always becomes a byproduct of the actual story Russell's wanting to tell, which is like tragedy, which is a love story with Rosen, the doctor, which is um, all these different things. And he's always getting at that emotional core, but like then mm-hmm. leaves these really interesting concepts on the table with, not um and i'm not saying that's a bad thing by any means it's just that's not his that's not his concern that's not his bag um yeah and and it's the same with this episode like it's interesting to sort of to fixed events are interesting and let's interrogate that but actually he's just using that as a way of saying well if the doctor was in a place where he couldn't change events what would that what would happen? What would that be like? Yeah. The funny thing is, right. we actually already did this in Fires of Pompeii. <laughs> <laughs> and they bring up Fires of Pompeii in this And episode. they do. But this is sort of like, and I, what I actually kind of like about it is it's like, it strengthens that in a weird way because it's about an event that is fictional. It's about an event that is in our, in our future. And so mm-hmm. in terms of Doctor Who, it opens up this door to like any future event could be and they don't ever do this, <laughs> but any future event could be a fixed point. Um, yes. And what would the doctor do in that scenario? Um, mm. at- Isn't um, the, sorry, you said a future event is a fixed point. Isn't the, the battle of demons run one of those fixed points for the show? Don't remember that correctly. Well, that's Moffat's era. So I guess they kind of do away with this concept by then. But no, no, I know. I just, I feel like I remember there was like specific dialogue about how the events of Demon's Run had to play out the way they did because otherwise history would change or something. I think it was his death. <laughs> I think it was his death okay. by the lake. Oh yeah. I forgot about that as well. Yeah. God, we're, we're going to have fun. We are going to have fun with that <laughs> era. We definitely are. But yeah, like, um, ultimately what I'm saying yeah. is like, it's like, this is an episode that's about, it's, it's about Adelaide, but it is more about the doctor. Um, yes. Which. Yeah, that's fair. Is, is probably a good segue to talking about the unsung kind of hero of, of our podcast. We don't talk about. <laughs> which is David Tennant. Yeah, we, 
Exactly. We realized a little while back that we hadn't talked about David Tennant's acting for, for like 20 episodes now, <laughs> something like that. Mm. Um, it, it, is, it has been a hot minute since we've specifically focused on this man. And like that is... Uh, you know, like we've obviously gotten a little bit not burnt out on this era, but like we were just kind of like we're, we're wrapping up with it. Um, and David Tennant's performance is one that is so consistent that it's easy to not talk about it because you're just like, oh, it's David Tennant. Of course, he's good as the doctor. Um, and, you know, we, we've had our criticisms here and there of like the screaming sometimes and the running and the yeah, it's all just a bit overplayed at times. But then you get to these last three episodes, and I, I definitely think this extends over the next two episodes as well, where he is so dialed into the emotional reality of the Doctor at this point in his life, the sadness, the anger, the the vitriol, that um, it's just a banger of a performance. Like, flowers for David Tennant, truly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, he... he, he- he does do this kind of like, and it's really surprising. And it actually, it's kind of a thing that Matt Smith will take and run, you know, in in new and crazy and amazing uh, directions. But he does this thing of being like the old soul and this old god in mm-hmm. a young body thing very well. And I think it's all about his jaw. He does great jaw acting. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and. Yeah, like he's doing, he's just got this set, like, kind of stony face. He's watching events play out with, with just immense sadness. But then something, I, the, and this is, I think the sequence from when he leaves the base and he's hearing all of these people die and then the mm-hmm. ship blows up and there's that sequence of, like, um, of clips from past episodes running through his head where he's like, you know, I'm the last of the Time Lords. I can't change anything. They died. They all died. What I love about it is it, it, it it's the beginning of feeling like this era is reaching something. It's reaching its conclusion. It's reaching its, mm. its, its thesis. Um, yes. And, and I love that feeling. Um, earned or unearned. And, and, and from mm. that point on, when he goes back to the base and he, has become this wild thing when he's like, he takes control of Gadget and he's like, come on, come on. And pushing it forward. He's like, he's, his face looks absolutely on fire. Um, yes. it's, it's the, he's snapped. He snapped. <laughs> he snapped. It's yeah. the most thrilling performance and the most I've liked David Tennant, you know, since whatever other episode I'm sure I had where I was like, he's really good in this. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and it's so interesting that he goes on to top it next week. <laughs> I know, <laughs> you know, I know. <laughs> Let's yeah, we can talk about that then. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, and Adelaide in that scene as well is like, you know, I love the, I love the like what, the the minute that she like is like, you know, you said we die, and he's like, things can be changed, like I can change them, and she sets the self destruct, and he's like, mm-hmm. I'll have to go through you too. Yeah, like I'm fighting time itself. Don't make me fight you as well, basically. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, that's the other um, one when he's like, yeah, like um, I, this is a fight. This isn't a fight against the flood. It's a fight against time, and I'm gonna win. Um, ah, mm. oh, it's 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 chilling, and it is. And all I have to say really about it is it's like this perfect thrust of emotion. Um, mm-hmm. that this era does so well. That this era does so well. It does. It's interesting that you you mentioned there, like whether it's earned or not, and like I, that's what I find so interesting about the waters of Mars is that it is it it's as if it is the conclusion to the series that you and I have specifically wanted while talking on this podcast. You know, like all, everything comes to a head about all of the flaws of the Doctor, mm. and it makes them text it, it, and it explores them a little bit and it does it in a really like fun and engaging way um and in that regard i feel very you know fed hydrated by, by what's going on in the waters of mars mm. um it's just that like i said at the top of the show when i consider it in the broader context that i'm like this is really cool but this doesn't necessarily what you were building to with 
this dude the entire time. And and I, I say that because like, yes, obviously the subtext is there about the God complex and you and I have seen it acknowledged. I think a lot of people have come around to sort of seeing and acknowledging it. Um, but that doesn't change the fact that, you know, you've got the doctor in this episode that the point that really stuck with me, and it's an amazing bit of acting on his part, but where he's like, you know, I've saved some little people before, um, but never anyone as important as you. And Adelaide is obviously horrified at that, at that line. Mm. Um, And I love it. It's exceptional. It's everything I ever wanted from David Tennant's doctor. But then I think about how just last week we were watching uh, planet of the dead, which is an episode entirely about him being like, I love the little people. You guys are the ones that matter. It's ultimately about you. Um, and there's a dissonance there um, that I don't think quite works as a structural um, bit of writing, even if in the moment it is, it's the correct choice for this doctor, I would say, to have him ultimately reach this conclusion. I just don't feel like they paved the way there as well as they could have. Uh, look, I completely agree. And it's a symptom of David Tennant's last run being specials, basically. Yes. Um, yeah. Because I don't think... I, I think that they would have... I was about to say something mean, which is that I don't think they would have been brave enough to do a series without a companion. Um uh yeah no i don't think so either but Um, yeah i'm glad they did the specials with that one but me too um and i do think the companion plays a very important role but i'm not like i'm not in this camp of like and the reason i say this is because like in the classic series there wasn't the deadly assassin which was like the one episode where the doctor didn't have a companion it was tom baker because tom baker thought he didn't need one and so they did this one story (laughs) And, and, and everyone's been like, that was a bad episode and he needs a companion. And it's like this myth of the companion has sort of permeated from that point on. And I love the companion, but to tell this specific, (laughs) specific story with the time that I think we needed it to be told in, you needed a full series in a way. Um, um, yeah, if I could just piggyback on that for, for one moment, mm. um, cause like, I, I do think RTD's era is very pro companion. You know, I I think it is very loudly saying that the doctor specifically needs a companion. Um, And if I feel like that, that thesis could have worked a lot more, even if it was just the the previous two specials, right? Let's say they don't have the balls to do a whole series of it. That's fine. Mm. But you want to do, you know, three or four episodes where he's on his own. And that ultimately leads to the, the crack that we see in this episode, right? That's great. Um, the The problem is that um, uh, Harry Cyberman and and Flyboys <laughs> on a Desert Planet episodes, yep. they give him a companion. Um, exactly. They they specifically give him a, a surrogate person to to slot into that role, and that role is not used to further what could be happening here. Um, it, it's just a well, we needed a Christmas episode, and then we needed a an Easter episode. Like um, mm. they're they're not building to to what we get here. Um, and I, I said this to you, I don't know if it was on the last recording or at some point, but like to, to go from um, uh, Journey's End, right, to Waters of Mars makes all the more sense to me. Because if you go from him losing everybody to this moment where he's like, fuck off, I'm tired of losing, I think you get a much clearer emotional through line of the character. Totally. Those two specials in the middle, you know, are it, it's content. You know, like they, they needed something to put on the BBC. And I, I get it. Um, I had an okay time with the Harry Sidman episode, but I do think that it, um, it, it falters the sort of emotional integrity of the story they were trying to tell with Tennant. And it is too depressing to do it the way I would want to do it. I don't think a general audience is really on board with my version of how David Tennant should have ended up. Mm. Um, but I don't think I'm wrong in wanting that. I don't think you are either. And I think if I can sort of take a moment to sort of put my head and my mind in the head of the writer, of the show, Russell, mm. um, I think that that's probably if he had like absolute free reign, what he would have done. Because we yeah. know that, and this is for next week, but we know that the David Tennant's last episode that went out is not his intended vision. Mm. We know that they, the BBC insisted that he do this big, grand, double-parter ending for him. So, like, I, I can't help but feel like if he felt like he was writing for no one but himself, if he, if he had mm. the sort of... 
shackles of the BBC off his back, then he would have done the story that we're, or a version of the story that we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think that the next Doctor and Planet of the Dead function purely as filler. Um, and in the, and, and, and family entertainment filler, because that's what the show is. And yeah. it's, it's, it's yeah. this constant t- pull and, and push between a, a vision and obligations, I suppose. Um, mm. Yeah. Which kind of just makes you think, well, you, you, maybe they shouldn't have attempted this at all, you know? Yeah, I, I, I know what you mean. I, I'm ultimately always much more on board with a failed attempt than just a safe nothing. Um, and I, I think that that's... the Chibnall era. Well, fucking truly, though, that, that's kind of where I was going to steer us back to there, even in, unintentionally. But, like, um, you know, for all of my gripes, and I've had many with RTD across this, this revisit of his era, there's a vision there. Like, I, I see what he's trying to go for. And then Moffat is this really fascinating example of somebody who has these like galaxy brain ideas and his execution can't always get there. Um, but the heart of what Moffat wants to do with this show is, is just so strong and, and beating so loudly. I love it. And then you get to Chibnall and you just kind of like, you're just making content like mm. I, I i don't i don't see his vision for the show and i think it's because you know and rtd um switched between uh seasons as well i think the the break between matt smith and capaldi is a really good example of moffat just radically changing the direction of his characterization because of what he needed to do there um because we've only had Jody the entire time and because season 11 and then 12, 13 and then Flux have been such different beasts that I, I don't feel as if we've earned any of the, the tonal shifts. I don't feel like the, the more humble ideas of what he was going for in series 11 match up with what he's ended up doing with, with Flux. And, and now at the end here with these just fat shitly badly written specials, um, Sorry, didn't mean to get off on a chip and tangent there, <laughs> no. but like, as we're coming into the end of RTD, like, you can't help but sort of think about the show as a as a whole. And I think these three men, by comparison, are fascinating. They are, they are. They are, definitely represent three different uh, ways of doing things, shall we say. <laughs> um, but to get us back onto yes. the, the, the track of this episode, um, ultimately all this... All of this leads up to a conversation between the Doctor and Adelaide. Well, a series of conversations, actually, between the Doctor and Adelaide, which is, um, you know, <laughs> the, the the revelation that Adelaide is inspired to go into the stars by past events of the Doctors, um, namely the Dalek yeah. invasion of Earth. Um, mm-hmm. the, the Adelaide sort of challenging the Doctor and her, him telling her that she's going to die, like, so already interfering with time by telling her that. Um, and then the yeah. Adelaide sort of saying, like, things need to stay on the track, that you can't change things, and the Doctor's saying, well, I can do whatever I like. And then she has the awful line of, the Time Lord Victorious is wrong. What do you think yeah, of the Time Lord it's... Victorious? <laughs> um, I, I remember before I rewatched Waters of Mars, um, and this was a while ago. It was after we'd, re- we'd after we'd started the podcast, um, and I'd always heard the term Time Lord Victorious and been like, "Oh my god, how dramatic! That must be such a big story point in this epi- in these episodes. I can't wait to get to it." <laughs> and then you get to it, and it's just. It's a throwaway line. It's nothing. Mm. Um, and I, I, I know that there's like subsequent, like supplementary material about this, I'm sure. But like, I'm not a dork. I'm not going to do that stuff. Um, uh, but no, I, I, I think it's, again, it's a great concept. It's just not earned. And especially having Adelaide be like, the Time Lord Victorious is wrong. Like, you just heard those words, girl. Like, you don't, <laughs> you don't know what that means. Um, don't even know what Adelaide's a great is. Exactly, exactly right. Um, it's it's a really odd last scene there with the those guys in the street. Um, we we talked about this briefly, but like 
Gemma Chan's reaction to the TARDIS and being saved in any other episode, mm. right? It's bigger on the inside. You've saved my life would be a positive, mm. right? But because mm. this episode needs to drive home the tone that it's going for, she is horrified by the TARDIS, horrified by the doctor, horrified by the entire idea of what's happened there. Like it is a full blown trauma response, which is interesting. It's really, really interesting and good, but because the show has never done that before and doesn't really do it again, it, it just feels like such a, well, you just needed this for this episode. Like it wasn't an organic extension of the character you'd set up with her because you didn't set her up as a character. Um, so mm. I, I don't know that, that, that stuff's a little bit wobbly. And then, yeah, as we were saying, the Adelaide time of Victoria stuff is odd. Even if David Tennant is selling it like uh, perfectly. <laughs> He is selling it perfectly. It's 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 the quickness of the of the line. It's the quickness of the concept. It's it's the kind of hokiness of that like description as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And you know, for for a writer who really likes to foreshadow things with like Bad Wolf, Torchwood, Mister Saxon, mm. this could have been the thing that he foreshadowed and been like, the Time Lord Victorious yes. is coming. Um, yeah, yeah. But instead they just sort of drop it in this, in this, in this last scene. And yeah, it's, it's, I do think it's disappointing because, um, because obviously the events of this episode go on to impact and influence the events of the finale. Um, I mean, somewhat. (laughs) Well, his choice here definitely puts him in a, in a melancholic mood <laughs> shall we say yeah yeah like, exactly it's my time yeah. by the time he gets to that point um mm-hmm. i don't think i have a point more than that really but um no that, that's fair that's fair i mean this ending is just kind of like a lot of thoughts rushing at you at once and it is um, and it is and 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 adelaide choosing to kill herself is so i i still don't know how i feel about it like <laughs> over 10 years just later. quickly before yeah, I do know. It's a huge choice. Um, I do want to say, just before we get to that, um, there's a a moment of really good RTD writing, in my opinion, because he gets these small moments really right sometimes, mm. is when, you know, they land back on Earth, uh, the other two get out and run off because they're horrified by what's happened here. Adelaide's just standing there in the street, and he's like, oh, there's your home, go on. He's like, oh, wait a minute, I guess your house would be locked, wouldn't it? And he just casually unlocks it with the screwdriver, and that's the moment where she's like, you can just do anything, can't you? Like... It's not that massive time warp moment that they just had together that is kind of like a little emotional like linchpin of that scene for me. It's just the casualness of, uh, I can do anything. Her being like, shit, bro, like, what's the point? Like, do you know what I mean? I do know what you mean. I do know what you mean. Um, what's the point? Well, I mean... <laughs> That's kind just of like, the rub. She's just so utterly defeated by him at that point. You know, like, it's the culmination of when he says to her when they're on the base, like, I'll fight you as well. And it's like, yeah, he he beat her down <laughs> by being like, I, I am correct. I'm deciding everything from this point on. And her reaction to that being a suicide is, mm. I think there's a kernel of emotional truth in there. Um, I think for me where it gets wobbly is the idea of her. If she only does that because she's like, well, my granddaughter is going to be brilliant, but only if I die. Um, and in her mind being like, well, if I kill myself in my apartment, that's going to have the same impact on her as if I died in the base Mm. is like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like that is such a massive misfire of tone about what a suicide would do to a family. It is. Um, it is. Especially after the other two characters are established as sharing the story of what happened there. And so they would say she came back with us and then killed herself. Um, like that, that's, that's not inspiring. That's a that's, lot. That's terrifying. And exactly. And I kind of like, I like how one of the um, headlines that flashes after she kills herself is like, Susie Fontana flies or something, uh, family legacy intact. Like, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Like intact it, from what? It's very clunky. Like, <laughs> exactly. You, this... you didn't know that there was anything. It couldn't have been intact from. Exactly. Like, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, and to yeah. provide some sort of context, Moff, uh, Russell actually 
has a bit of a, a history of these like weird clunky endings for these one-off campa- companions. Um, mm. Originally, Astrid Peth, the Kylie character from Voyage of the Damned, she wasn't going to die. Oh, yeah. She was going to kill somebody with a gun and the doctor would be so disgusted he couldn't take her with him, basically. And then that would be the reason she was oh. a one-off companion. <laughs> um. That's more interesting, though, than what he did with her in the end. <laughs> sure, but, like, you know, that episode is, is a big, tragic, um, you know, runaround. So, like, it makes much more sense tonally for her to, to die. Yeah. Sacrificing yeah, I, I, herself. I get that. I get that. Um, um, and then Lady Christina in the episode previously, like, the Doctor's like, oh, you're a thief, so I can't take you with me, but I'm going to give you the keys to a- repugnant. <laughs> I'm going to give you the keys to a bus and you can fly off into this, into the sky, but you're a thief and I can't have you travel with me. Um, like one off companions, like, I guess he writes himself into a corner. He's like, well, I don't know how to make it so that these people wouldn't then want to like, how do I break them apart basically? And it's the same thing here. Like I almost get this sense of Russell writing up to this point and then being like, well, she can't live. So, what mm. do I? What do I do? And and it's it's kind of it's frustrating because like, yeah, maybe she could have sacrificed herself, you know, on the base. Maybe she could have. Yeah, I just think there's a lot of ways that you could, like, even if you wanted to do, because okay, and and here's what we get a little bit like edgy or fucking whatever. But like, I do think the suicide is an important part of the emotional makeup of, of that ending. Right. Um, and so I personally would have had it as she feigns being impressed with him feeds into that version of him. Right. And is like, well, fucking show me the stars. They land on a planet and then she kills herself there. That way she's not on earth. Um, and that way it's just, well, she could have died at the base. Right. Like it it kind of ties up the weird plot shit. Um, and you also get a bit more of a, um, a, a, her understanding of, of what he is. Um, I think the, the flip side to that is that if you're going to have her um, shoot herself in the end, I needed more of a understanding that it was because of the fate stuff. So if, if she'd sort of ultimately had to grapple with none of my choices have ever mattered, um, this man has now come along and like essentially I've met God, right? And, and God has said... I'm deciding for you now and she can't deal with how existentially horrifying that is and then shoots herself. I think that's emotionally satisfying and interesting for the story they were telling. Um, but ultimately what you get is just a, a bit of a down the middle where it's it's kind of neither and then it's it's nothing, you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I couldn't put it better myself. Yeah. Still though, good episode. <laughs> it is a good episode and actually I think that like I'll just our pulling a part of this last the, the 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 episode itself is evidence of that there's something in here oh you know. yeah I, I think this has so much meat on the bone mm. um I, I think this is just like and that's the thing like i this is a critical conversation i don't think this is a negative conversation like no. <laughs> you've heard us be negative folks um th- this isn't it like there, there's just a lot to think about here and it's just really interesting it is it is interesting and it's a, it's a good episode ultimately um still yeah um and the only things that really let it down are its era <laughs> in, well. a, in a weird way <laughs> yeah that is true um, yeah what do you give it out of out of a to f um i'm somewhere between a b plus and an a minus yeah i'm pretty firmly a minus i think Okay. Maybe A. Yeah. Well, oh, if you'll go A, I'll go A minus. Okay. We'll balance each other out. That's fine. Though. Okay. So yeah. it's still in the A category. Oh, uh, yeah. It's good. It's good. Good episode. Um, one more. What? One more RTD story. And then we're done. We're one well, for episode. Now. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> could you imagine? Could you imagine, honest to God, if we got to this point in our podcast and like the news about Russell hadn't hit and we recorded like this and then minutes later got the notification he was coming back i hope you like and that, like we did like a big goodbye <laughs> and we're like oh my god a queer man we love you <laughs> <laughs> and then we're like oh no um, we have to talk about him again <laughs> like 
shit. It just never ends. It'd just... be like if Chibnall announced he was doing another series. I would. Oh my god! I would quit. No. <laughs> could you could you imagine if that's why they're delaying announcing the fourteenth Doctor? Because he's like, I'm staying. You've got me for another oh. three years. Hooray! And everyone was like, <laughs> four more years. <laughs> <laughs> Chibnall, go um, away. Uh, yeah, but look, um, uh, what is the next two part called? I forget. The end of time itself. That's right. The end of time part one and two. Um, Calum and I have both rewatched it already, so we're both sort of already formulating our our thoughts and feelings on it. Um, I don't know that we've hinted that it's going to be an interesting conversation, and I I, I think it's going to be much like this one. Like, there's a couple more things I'm a little bit more critical of, um, but ultimately I didn't walk away negatively from those those two episodes, and so I'm, I'm really excited to dive into them. Um, me too, and I'm also I also um have a lot more positive things to say about it than I thought I would. So. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. I think it'll be totally. a really good chat. But until then, yes, as always, <laughs> uh, thank you for listening to us each and every fortnight here on Two Hearts. Uh, if you would like, please drop us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you listen to the show that lets you review it. Um, it just makes us feel nice and helps us grow uh, our little our little show. Um, if you want to have your thoughts and feelings or questions aired on the show, please feel free to email us at twoheartspodcast at gmail.com. That's two, the word two. Or you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at twoheartspod, two, the number two. I have been Callum, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Theatricallum. And I've been James. You can find me on Twitter at OMG More James. We will see you beautiful people in two weeks' time for the end of time. <gasps> Until next time when there's n- more time. No more time? <laughs> School? No time for... S- no time for time? I know it's not time for time. <laughs> I'm going in the other TARDIS to have a conversation. If you want to join me, please feel free. Hello, Doctor. Keep it down in How there. How are you? I don't want to talk about it. Leave me alone. Keep it down in there, you two. Uh, we have fun. Have you stopped recording? Oh. <laughs> <laughs>